The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz. Calcedon has long been a proponent of Christian education, and Dr. R.J. Rushduni emphasized that every area of life and thought must be governed by the law of God. And he encouraged believers to take dominion in their areas of expertise and interest. Now, many learn to appreciate this perspective in terms of history, science, and literature. However, many ask the question, isn't mathematics a theologically neutral subject? My guest today is James Nickel, a math teacher who will get behind this question. But before I introduce him, I'd like to share a personal story. I first became acquainted with James one weekend I was visiting Cal Seton, and Dr. Rushduni was excited about a manuscript he had received and was considering having Cal Seton published. He told me he wanted me to read it. I agreed, saying that I would take it home with me and do so. He responded that this was his only copy and he wanted me to read it before I left. So while the rest of my family did other things, I sat in his living room and read the first edition of the book, Mathematics is God Silent, by today's guest. Thanks for joining me today, James. Thank you for having me. So we have a lot to discuss today, and I'd like to have our listeners get some background on you how you came to venture into this area of writing a book on mathematics and eventually producing a math curriculum. I've always been interested in uh, mathematics in my grammar school, high school, and college years. I majored in it. But the way it was taught to me uh, was basically a disconnected, abstract, pie-in-the-sky approach that was generally taught in college as a passport to get your job. So I did not see any type of connection to real life or to the life of God, by that matter, until I uh, encountered uh, Dr. Vern Poitras' articles that were produced by Chalcedon back in the 1970s, entitled Mathematics and God, or Biblical Approach to Mathematics. There are two essays that he wrote. And I must have read those essays, uh, the one specifically in Foundations of Christian Scholarship. It was a hardback book produced in the mid-1970s. I must have read that essay about a 100 times before I finally understood what he was saying. That's how dense I was in terms of philosophy and connections like that. I got the math part, but to see how Poitras was connecting it together and showing why 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a non-neutral statement, that there are uh, realities about the way creation is structured that are behind those types of statements and why they are true and how they are applicable. And so that started me on a thought process that has lasted the rest of my life. I was in my mid-20s. All right, so then there's that. You read it, you digested it. Apparently you chewed on it for quite some time if you read it a hundred (laughs) times. What prompted the book that eventually I had to spend that weekend reading (laughs) its first edition? (laughs) Well, I ended up surprising. I read read the essay when I was teaching high school at the Youth with a Mission in Kailua, Kona, Hawaii. Met someone there in uh, Hawaii, 
and from Australia, and he invited me to come teach in Australia. So I went to Australia after I married in 1980, and I got to Australia in 1982 and began teaching. And there was a very well-known author of mathematics at that time, since passed away by the name of Morris Klein. Morris Klein had written a book entitled Mathematics, The Loss of Certainty. And I read that book, and uh, I read other books by Klein, and Klein was a sort of an agnostic slash atheist and didn't think that God had anything to do with math. But he was very articulate in his, correct, I might say, in his analysis of the history of math and how the Christian perspective, Christian mathematicians, Christian scientists, really laid the foundation for the development of math and science. And he did not poo-poo that. He articulated that very well. So when he wrote his book, Mathematics, The Loss of Certainty, I read that and it says, there's an answer to this. So I started to write and research and to study about the answer to it, and it enabled it basically required of me the effort to reinterpret the history of mathematics from a what I would now call a Trinitarian perspective, where God is the ground of knowledge and rationality, and how mathematics flows out of that ground. So I began to reinterpret and reframe mathematics in that context started to write some things and summarize some ideas and started to lecture on it in Australia. And out of that flowed a, an outline a, that, was, that formed the book that, that Rush Journey eventually published in 1990. And I tried to find uh, publishers who would publish it, and no one was interested in it except one person. That was Rush Journey. And that's what he wanted. To, he saw the value of it. It was rather crude in its first edition. The second edition is much better. He saw the value of it, and he pursued it. You expanded between the first and second edition, maybe, what, 300% in terms of what you covered? and 300 pages. <laughs> okay. So a couple of things I want to say before we go further in terms of how you've then taken this desire. You're a great example of someone who took the crumbs, you might say, when Rush Dooney said every area of life and thought needs to be subject to the word of God, Rush Dooney was not a mathematician, yet he knew that this was an area that had been given over to secularists and humanists and saw the value in bringing it back where it belongs. Can you comment a little bit on the idea that says math is neutral? And you said two plus two equals four is theological. Could you explain that? Okay, uh, going back to, to Rushton, it was his, his perspective, his viewpoint, before I answer that question, his viewpoint that uh, really struck me as it really rang truth into my heart in the 1970s. It, was, it wasn't just him. There were other individuals that, I, that the Lord brought in, along my pathway that basically said the same thing. And when I was a math teacher, I said, well, then how does this apply to math? And, and they would respond. And these were university professors, one in specific. His response was, well, I don't have any idea. That's for up, to you, up to you to figure out. <laughs> well, then reading Poitras' article got me going on it. That's the, the background to it that kind of thrust me into it. And no one, were re no one was really interested in, in what I was doing except for a very small number of people. Really no support, no encouragement except for my wife and then a, a few people like Rush Duty and other, others of interest who saw the value in the work. Back to 2 plus 2 equals 4. I like to talk about the word number, not numbers, but number. 
And what I say by when I say number, I'm I'm talking about the rationality of the universe, the way the universe fits together, the way that the universe interacts, objects in the universe in universe interact with each other. And we we have that interaction from the get go as children when we pick up a ball and we learn that this is a ball, one ball, and we kind of connect that ball to the idea of one, and we take another ball and we see it, now we have two balls, and we start to learn uh, how to count things by looking at the objective nature of reality outside of us. And what's so amazing is that our minds are geared to recognize the reality that lives outside of us. So two plus two equals four, is, is a report on the way our minds work. And the way our minds work, of course, we're speaking in base 10 now, the way our minds work and the way creation is in sync with our minds. What's outside of us is in sync with the, that simple equation, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And the wonder of this, why is that sync? Well, atheist mathematicians and philosophers, people like Morris Klein, and etc. When they when they go to the question of why is there a sync between what what's outside of us and what the way we think, they use the words mystery, they use the words magic. They have no idea, clueless. So, so you're saying that there's a philosophy of mathematics that must go along with the actual computation aspect. Yes. So there, behind the computation, there is a living reality. The philosophy points to a living person. And the living person is the creator, the triune creator, who is the author of the patterns in the universe, because the whole universe holds together, consists in the person of Jesus Christ, the Word. Ultimate rationality is Jesus Christ. And he is the creator who holds all things together, including what's outside of us and the way our mind thinks. And so the reason why our mind thinks mathematically and the reason why things outside of our mind, the objective reality outside of us, carries within it a rationality that can be described using numbers is because there's a common creator who holds all things together, sustains all things. So the philosophy is a person. So in answer to the question of your first book, Mathematics is God Silent, what I came away from in that first reading was not only is God not silent, he's screaming. <laughs> Would you yeah. give some examples of things that people probably have not really considered in terms of the obvious design that numbers show us in various spheres of life that maybe people never related to mathematics? Well, I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, if you use a cell phone and you're connecting through these wireless electromagnetic waves, there's mathematics flowing throughout that entire interconnection, as James Kirk Maxwell's equations verify. So everything about your life and, and the ability to see, because light waves are reflecting off of objects, and the very nature of light is deeply mathematical. So our entire life is, is surrounded and undergirded by lawful patterns that are descriptive. We can describe them using mathematics. Mathematics reports on it, not just reports on it. It enables us to, to learn and to apply and to develop new ideas and new inventions and new objects. So mathematics is more than just a language. It is a language, but it's a language reporting on some, something deeper. You know, it is a language not like English and, and French. 
but is a language reporting on the language of creation, which is Christ himself. So without mathematics, there are certain things that could not be described. That's correct, yeah. Okay. So I remember being really impressed, not having had a huge music background, but that the number in terms of music or petals on a flower or the rainbow and things like that. Would you just comment on that a little bit? Because I remember I was excited about it and it was like new concepts to me. Okay. You know, in terms of petals on the flower there, this, the way that flowers grow, one example, and, and you start seeing uh, their, their structure, look at a sunflower, you investigate a sunflower or a pine cone or cabbage or things like that. You'll see uh, the, the, the spiral patterns appearing, especially when you look at a sunflower and look at the crux of it, not the petals. You'll see two spiral patterns occurring, and if you count the number of spirals going one way and the number of spirals going another way, you'll come up with numbers that are that were discovered or developed by a guy in the 13th century by the name of Fibonacci, and he was describing all kinds of things about the way numbers relate to created reality, and that's one example, the Fibonacci numbers. So another example, you just mentioned music. Well, of course, Pythagoras was a fellow who understood the, the basic ratios that govern octaves and thirds and fourths and how that, that those patterns, the vibrations of springs, are all mathematical. And when you hear a good chord, there's mathematical resonance behind what you're hearing with your ears. And so there's a connection between music and mathematics. You look at the rainbow. The rainbow with light reflect, reflecting and refracting out of a raindrop. All the physics behind that. I have an 18-page essay on my website that describes all the geometry involved in analyzing the physics of a rainbow. And you're encountering trigonometric functions. You're encountering the nature of electromagnetism. All that describable by mathematics. And so it's just an amazing, beautiful picture that you, a beautiful picture and a beautiful world that you enter into if you know something about mathematics, if you don't know anything about that, this beauty, that wonder, I mean, the whole universe becomes a symphony in silence. You can't hear it unless you have the mathematics to help you see it and appreciate it in a deeper way. What a, what a great phrase, a symphony in silence. What I think is interesting, James, is that today people will say, oh, I just can't understand math. It's too complex for me. Hey, I'm not a rocket scientist. And they give the subject over to people who can't explain some of the things you just explained. I can't see how a Big Bang and then evolved lower forms of animals coming into higher forms of animals is going to be able to create this order that you're describing. Comment on how Christians have abandoned the field and when that happened. Can you can you repeat that more specifically? I didn't quite catch the question. Well, it looks like what we're saying. What I'm saying is this: you've got scientists today, by and large, the majority, or at least the most vocal, who deny the existence of God and says we all came about by chance. Okay. All right. But what you just described doesn't sound very chance-like. There's no explanation for it. So it looks like the subject of math has been hijacked. And when did that happen? And how? from your understanding of the history of it, did Christians allow that to happen? Well, it happened after the, uh, you know, the Reformation and the uh, scientific revolution kicked in and Isaac Newton's world picture was 
so productive and so influential and so successful that individuals began to understand what he was doing without the, the foundation that produced it, all right? So you have Newton, Galileo, and Kepler and those guys, and, and going into, the, even into the 19th century, men like James Clerk Maxwell and Michael Faraday, who they understood where all these patterns were coming from, all right? But what happened was that the patterns that were descri- describable by mathematics was so successful, and of course, uh, with the Enlightenment, and the Renaissance producing the Enlightenment, where reason was seen as God, and the, the God was seen as uh, irrelevant to the way we think, there is a slow process of where God was kind of left out of the picture. And the successes of science were absolutized as, the, uh, as now God, basically. Science is the only realm to truth, but the ground that produced the science, the ground of ideas that generated the science in the first place was a living God revealed in scripture. And then its success dethroned <laughs> the foundation. And okay. so what we need now is, is for individuals and scientists and parents and mathematicians and everybody to see that the ground of all the patterns of reality, the ground of all of life is the living God revealed to us by Jesus Christ, who is the, who is the, the Father created through him and the Father sustains all things through the word. So we have to come back to that living reality. And our culture is crying out in all manner of ways and forms. Of we want to know what is the meaning of life. Where is all this coming from? And we all have all these false ideas. And the, the, the true idea is Jesus Christ himself. The truth is a person. It's a relationship to him. So it goes back to if the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? Well, this is sort of what Rush Juni was saying. Rebuild the foundations. Let's get back to the truth, mm-hmm. which, as you said, is Jesus Christ in all aspects. In your study of math and science, since they go together, have you found many contradictions in the scripture, the way that secularists will tell us that the Bible isn't a science book, therefore you shouldn't look to it? I believe that you are starting with creation and the ground of creation. And scripture, scripture speaks to who the person is that grounds creation. So we're, we're free, therefore, to investigate the created order and discover laws and patterns. We're not going to find all those laws and patterns in Scripture. No, but Scripture's given us the reason for it. Like Maxwell, for example, when he looked at uh, the way that Newton... Newton's view of the cosmos was very mechanical, cause and effect mechanical type of view. And and Maxwell saw that electromagnetic theory that he was trying to develop, Newton's equations couldn't uh, resolve what he was discovering in the created order, that there needed to be a fix to what Newton was doing. And you know what, what made him change? It was his understanding of who God was and how he revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the created order had to reflect a deep relationality that Newton's mechanical view did not give that deep relationality. It was theology that formed Maxwell's 
changing views of the nature of the universe. Does that kind of answer your question in one it way? It does. You're, you're basically going back to people's presuppositions yeah. are going to be what governs how they interpret what they see. Yes, and our, for, our view of God's going to inform us on how to look at creation and how to see how the objects of creation are interacting. Okay, so do you think that um, today with a lot of branches of math that, quite frankly, I couldn't begin to understand about abstract and imaginary and all this sort of thing, new maths that come out of it, are some of them grounded in the presuppositions of atheism? Most mathematicians, I believe, when, they, when it comes to philosophy, they're not really that concerned about it because either they just like doing it, all right? If you're an applied mathematician and you're working as an engineer or a scientist or a physicist or astronomer, you're, 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 you're seeing how everything is applicable. And so it's, and they're not worried too much about philosophy. But the problem with that is if you're not worried too much about philosophy, you're not, you're, you're not seeing created reality through the right eyes. I mean, they, they respond when they do their work. This is beautiful. This is wondrous. This is amazing. They're responding to, to Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ in the created order because his name is wonderful. So when you look at Jesus Christ, your response is going to be, wow, this is amazing. He is amazing. He's wonderful. This is stunning. And so when you look at creation, you're going to have those same responses because creation is, is, is radiating the presence of Christ. But when people's eyes are blind to it, there's no, they don't have any answer to, the, to why they're seeing this wonder. They see it, they don't have a, a reason for it. That's why as Christians we need to evangelize their hearts and minds so they can see the reason for it. Then when they have that ground, then the production, I believe, will be even more profound when the ground base is right. Okay, we're talking Christian education is important, and there are many who have embraced it. You have Christian schools that have formed, and you have many people who are homeschooling so they can specifically deliver a Christian education. And there are Christian publishers that do Christian math books, and you decided that you needed to venture into the area of curriculum and you have created one. Tell us about that, and also tell us, don't we already have enough math curriculum? Why do we need another one? <laughs> this, is, that's, this has been my passion, because what I've seen uh, in the world of curriculum writing, of course, it's pretty obvious if you look at the secular world, that mathematics is just a hodgepodge of techniques to, to learn so you can get a good score in your SAT, basically. And what's happened is that our, our test scores have been getting worse and worse as time progresses because it's just, let's try this experiment. Let's do this way. Oh, common core is the answer. You know, all the stuff about in the secular world. And what happens in the Christian world is that there's an attempt to write curriculum in terms of math curriculum, and there's a lot out there. I just saw that things were just missing, that, that foundational ideas were missing, that they were trying to produce something just so they could say we produced a math curriculum from a Christian perspective and without some deep thinking into it. In some cases, I wondered if the, the writers of, of these curricula actually understood anything about mathematics. 
<laughs> so you're saying that instead of having the word problem in your grammar school text being two witches and two goblins, they might say two pastors and two elders were walking down the yeah, street. Pa- yeah, that's, Christianize that's, it. that's the extreme case. Another example is, let's, let's do mathematics for the glory of God, so we'll attach some scriptures to it. We'll put some scriptures in here and we'll do math for the glory of God without even looking at the foundations. Another curriculum that's out there, I won't mention the source, will try to prove, try to find places in scripture that prove like the associative law of multiplication. And they'll try to generate scriptural proofs for every one of these laws. And anybody who has any sense about what's happening realizes they're just kind of begging the question here. And it's just, and that's not the purpose of scripture is to prove every bit of mathematical, all the mathematical theorems, you can't do that. So you have those kinds of attempts. You have very little out there that really looks at the structure of mathematics, looks at how how it was developed in history, and sees historical flows and sees the structure, and then looks at ground-level realities, as I was talking about the person of Jesus Christ, as the ground for the rationality of number and the rationality of the universe, and builds from that and sees connections, sees how one idea leads to another idea, or one idea, one concept interpenetrates another concept, and shows the reason why these concepts, the ground reason why these concepts exist, these interpenetrations exist. So my goal I kept looking and kept looking and kept looking. I couldn't find anything. So the Holy Spirit finally told me, you need to write something. You need to do it. I started to do that in 2001. That's 17 years ago. Oh, wow. Okay, so I bumped into, because I'm one of those people who checks out everything, and, oh, James has come up with a math curriculum, and he's actually focusing much more on arithmetic, the basics, what we would say, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. And you had this interesting title. I kept thinking that it was the wrong, that somebody had told me the wrong thing. It was, it's called the dance of number. Right. And I kept looking for the dance of numbers because he had to be talking about numbers. That was just a typo. So explain the uniqueness of this curriculum and how'd you get that title? Well, the, it's, the dance was to try to explain the way concepts interpenetrate with each other, which is reflective of who God is because he's triune. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, and the Father and the Son and the Spirit interpenetrate. That's a theological term for that called perichoresis. How theologians in the early church tried to explain what it means for the Father to be in the Son. For the Father to indwell the Son, the Son to indwell the Father. And so this is who God is. And when God creates, we should be able to see in creation that same type of interpenetration on a creational level. Not, you know, equated to who God is exactly, but concepts line in other concepts. And so as we see this, it's like when you dance. When you, take a, when you dance with your dance partner, what has, to, what has to happen? You have to be in sync, all right? When I dance with my wife, I step on her toes. <laughs> right? So I'm not in sync with, with the rhythm. So there's a rhythm about mathematics. There's a rhythm that's grounded in rationality. Things connect with other things. So I chose the, the phrase dance of number, and I explained this in, in the text itself, 
there's this rhythm, there's this pattern that number reveals. And, and I define number as the rationality of the universe. So being that most people have not been educated this way, is your curriculum for adults or is it for children? It's for both because I believe adults can relearn. You know, most adults, when you ask them, did you like your math or do you like, you know, what's your opinion of math? And they almost see, all say, I hate math. It's just horrible. Or it's even a sign of, you know, I'm terrible at math. Yeah. How many people take credit for being terrible at something? Yeah, math is one of those things that people will take credit for being terrible at. So what I'm writing to children, of course, but also to adults, so they could go back and see these connections. So what makes math interesting? What makes math alive for individuals? I've learned this by teaching over the years, is that you you teach connections, how things are interrelated, and interest is immediately sparked. And so, you know, you're not going to hear math is boring if you show these connections. Science and math connects with history, math connects with theology. You show all this, their attention is there because it's speaking to who they are. They've been created by the triune God to be able to see relationships. That's what life is all about. So when they start hearing the discipline of mathematics taught in the context of interrelationships, I mean, it sinks. It resonates with them. They they don't step on each other's toes when they dance. Yes, no. And unfortunately, we've been stepping on people's toes, but it's the way that math has been taught. Okay, so is your curriculum that I know it's currently a two-volume set, if if I understand the current status of it, is this for what we would call high school level, middle school level? Who, who are you targeting okay. immediately? It's actually in two parts. All right, there's two parts to it, and each part has two volumes, so there's four volumes. And the first two volumes deal with arithmetic. And as I work through the operations of arithmetic, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and headed into fractions and decimals, I'm building algebraic concepts as I'm doing that, and geometric concepts. So when you're learning about multiplication, you're learning about uh, areas and volumes and things like that. And so that's the first part is geared toward teaching the student a mastery of arithmetical operations with preparation for algebraic understandings. And so the second part is also in two volumes, and that focuses on algebra geometry and trigonometry and even the rudiments of calculus. So this takes you into the high school level. So it starts with like 12, 13, 14-year-olds can start with the arithmetic and move into elementary algebra and advanced algebra is included. The whole kit and caboodle is in in this this part two. So it's equivalent to algebra one, algebra two, and it's a course in trig. Geometry is there. All of Euclid's proofs, his famous proofs, are all there. So it's a it's a full fledged high school course getting getting you ready for for a calculus. So your goal in this is to be able to prepare those God calls to move into the sciences and uh, mathematics as the language we talked about of science, so that they are grounded in a Christian world and life view as it relates to this subject, so they can take dominion yes. in those areas. They're grounded, number one, in, in the whys and the wherefores, 
but they've also mastered the, the, the algebraic syntax to be successful in it. In my life, as I've looked at education, as I looked at the, as I looked at the real world and people working in the real world in terms of scientific endeavors, there, there are two weak points that I've discovered in our curriculum. Number one, I get students coming into algebra who are clueless when it comes to arithmetic. They don't just don't know how to do add and subtract fractions. They've lost, they're lost. They don't. They haven't mastered arithmetic. And then when I teach calculus. I've discovered that students are clueless when it comes to algebra because al- calculus is really algebra on steroids. So don't we have calculators for that? Don't we have scientific calculators for the more complicated thing? Don't we have tools that make it unnecessary for us to know these things? Well, we have tools, but you have to have understanding to use the tools. You have to know what's going on behind the scenes to use the tools correctly. Yes, there are, there are, there's software out there. You can put in an equation. All right, and the software will solve the equation for you. You won't have to do it. But what are you missing when that happens? You're missing the reasoning process, the beauty of being able to look at an equation and to investigate it yourself and determine from the equation. The equation will give you all the clues necessary to solve it. You're saying that if you have this foundation, some of the problems and questions that remain unanswered could be answered if it's true that we think God's thoughts after him by people who are equipped to do the investigation. Yes, learn how to investigate it. And then as you engage in that, you're trusting the Holy Spirit to speak to you, as he's done with me multiple times in my life, suddenly ideas pop in your brain. You know, where'd that come from? Right. Well, did this come out of the blue? You had to be engaged in your thinking for the idea to pop. (laughs) Or you had to even know what you were looking at. Yeah, you had to know what you're looking for. And so the Holy Spirit will bless that type of diligence with new insights as you indwell in what you're doing. That's applicable across the board in whatever you're doing. Okay, as a veteran homeschool mom, and I'm in touch with lots of homeschool moms, and this would probably, this question even applies to Christian schools, because we've all invested in math curriculum, and there are many different approaches to it. Over the course of teaching my children, I use many different publishers. Some were drill, 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 until you beat it into the kid's head, and then he understood it, or whatever it was, and What about parents who'll say, well, we already have a math curriculum. If I start again, this sounds like it's going to take an awful long time to have my child be ready for the college classes or passing the SAT. So will this slow people down or will this accelerate them? Well, it's connected. So you basically, you start, you have to start with the, at the beginning, part one, volume one, and move all the way up to the four volumes. My estimate is it takes four years to do this, conservative estimate. So if people were going to say, well, we've already spent two years doing this or that, this would have been nice if I knew about it before. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is something that can be done jointly with other math curriculums, or would your suggestion be start from scratch? Well, it depends on, it depends on the individual that we're speaking to. What, 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 what's their age? You know, how, how well do they, do they know what they've learned so far? It's, it's all individualized. 
But, you know, my attempt here is, is to catch students when they're age 11, 12, and 13 and get, get them started right. If you're 16 and 17 and you're lost, you're going to have to retract anyhow, all right? And so the retract is going to take time to, uh, to do that. But if you catch a student at 12 and 13 and get them started right with this process, then, then I believe that uh, they'll be ready. How do you think your curriculum would answer, well, how well will my student do on a test? Do you think that there will be, or do you think that's actually sort of off the point as to why you even did it, that you're not geared towards high test scores? Well, that's another, that's a whole other thing. The SAT test scores are testing for certain things. You can score well on those SAT test scores if you just study the, the SAT big, thick books. And they'll tell you, you're going to get a question like this. So this is how you're going to answer a question like this. And then a lot of schools actually teach toward the SAT or the ACT. And what's missing is, is you can get a high score in the SAT and the ACT, but you may be missing some processes, some thinking processes in, by, by uh, just studying for the test. I know for a fact from math university professors have told me that their first year freshman students coming out of high school who are coming with high SAT scores, not all of them, but a good majority of them, when they come to calculus, they're lost. They haven't learned the language properly. They've just learned, they've memorized methods and techniques which they forget over the summer. And then, then with calculus, you have to master the, uh, the understanding. So there's more involved here than just a good high SAT score. I believe if you go through this curriculum, you're going to learn rigorous mathematics. You're going to be able to solve all kinds of equations and encounter all kinds of situations and decipher what's going on because you've learned how to interpret equations and to think through things. I would compare this to, for example, a phonetic approach to reading. You don't always get the child who can apparently read all these books because it's been a look-say process and he sort of memorized the book and then he can, you know, impress grandma and grandpa or auntie or uncle and go, look how well he can read. But if you give him something without pictures, he can't do it. Right. Yeah. So this curriculum sounds to me, and, you know, I don't have little ones that I'm teaching anymore, but I always look for people that I can help in this regard. Giving someone a solid foundation has them educated according to what the Bible calls education, usefulness for the kingdom of God, as opposed to impressing some admissions officer that you should go to their school, and maybe that school hates God and does all it can to turn people away from God, that we need to have our priorities correct in right. education. Right. So you know, a Christian perspective on test scores has to really change. But we're living in a world where test scores are important, and it's important for some Christian students to be able to get into Harvard and MIT and things like that because they need to reconstruct and reframe those institutions. It's going to take generations to do so, but they have, they've got to get in. And to get in, they've got to show that they understand the material. But the benefit of this curriculum, I don't want to plug myself too much, it's that you're going to have the understanding, but you're also going to know the background reasons, the ground, the ground realities behind what you're doing. 
you're going to be able to see see everything holistically. So when you come to a place like MIT, you can now look at what's what's being offered there, and you'll you'll be able to make connections that some other people might never be able to see because they haven't been trained to see to look for connections. And as someone who probably will not even visit MIT, let alone go to MIT. I think it's important in evangelistic purposes, even for someone like myself who was competent in doing the techniques and computations of arithmetic and mathematics to be able to speak to those who have achieved degrees and be able to speak to God as the source of the things that they consider marvelous and wonderful. So I think this goes beyond are you teaching arithmetic to someone Maybe all of us need to reteach ourselves properly. Right. Tell people, James, how they can find out more about your theory and how to acquire this curriculum. Well, I've self-published this, the curriculum, so it's available only on Amazon.com. The easy way to find me on Amazon is to type you know, my name. You'll see it come up on Amazon. Or you can do a Google search, and they'll take you right to the, the relevant links. Or go to my website. And my website has a lot of extra information. It has uh, ancillary material, links to, buy, to different things, more details, and all the ordering links on my website. It's biblicalchristianworldview.net. I apologize for the long word. But easy to remember. And so that has all the links. And so you can only order it via Amazon. Okay, so do you think that this could be a self-taught or a parent-guided curriculum? I mean, I'm thinking people would say, well, you know, if I had James as our teacher, that would be fine, but we don't. Do you think this is something that people can do on their own? That's why Saxon Math was so successful and has been, and probably still is, is because the, the parent can just put a book in front of Johnny's face and then Johnny just works through it. But what, what the problem with Saxon Math is that it... it uh, it's not beautiful mathematics, and so you may – it's taught by an engineer, and so it's it's basically a, a cookbook approach to learning how to do things. And so if that's what you want, that's fine, all right? So I, ha- I have to, to address uh, a parent who wants their child to really understand mathematics in this holistic, beautiful, rigorous, engaging way that sees mathematics beautiful – but uh, but most parents have no clue how to do that. So it's either me coming directly to the parent's home or creating all these videos that teach. Well, I decided not to do e- either one. So what I've done is that I've designed detailed solutions manuals to the, to the questions in the text. The, the texts all have a, a lot of work to do. The only way you're going to be learning mathematics is actually doing it. So you have your quote-unquote homework to do, but the, the, there's a detailed solutions manual that goes with those homework questions, not just the answers, but how you get to the answers, multiple ways to get to the answer. If I have multiple options, I show now which option is most efficient, okay? So the solutions manuals are really the, the strength of this, this uh, curriculum. So give me an idea of the cost. For example, if you decided to buy the first volume or the, just the, like you said, that there's four different books that you can get, would you recommend volume one and the answer key for that? 
volume volume one comes with an answer key, so you're looking at the cost. Uh, volume one's about 330 pages in length. It's uh, eight and a half by 11 inches in terms of its size, and it's got print that's not small. It's a good size print, so it's easy to read. Lots of uh, black and white graphics. So the text itself is about $28, <laughs> and that's a steal. Yeah, absolutely. The last two volumes are uh, on algebra. Each of the volumes are about 550 pages to 600 pages each, and they range between $48 and $52. So a typical book like that would cost $150. Absolutely. Say the website again that people can go to. BiblicalChristianWorldview.net, and you'll see a link or a menu item called Dance of Number. Click on that, then dig, dig down. And then for those who might be interested in a book you've heard about but never read, Mathematics is God Silent, that is available at calcedon.edu. Anytime I, James, have been at a homeschool convention, I would always put that book and I would put it on the thing that said, Dads, these books are for you. <laughs> and I have men always going there. Not that it's just for men, but it always, since I'm in Silicon Valley, it brought a lot of the engineers and they would pick it up. And nine times out of 10, that was the only book they bought. That's good. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, James. And I hope that people will be inspired to dig deeper into this. And I appreciate the work you do. And you know what? Giving up that one weekend turned out to be a good thing for me, not a bad thing. Well, thank you for your interest, Andrea. For listeners, send any sort of suggestions on future topics to Out of the Question Podcast at gmail.com. And if you have comments or questions about this, feel free to send them along as well. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit kingdomdrivenfamily.com. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.